You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to conference coverage highlights from the Radiological Society of North America's 95th Scientific Assembly and Annual Meeting, which took place November 29th through December 6th, 2009 in Chicago. Your host for this program is Dr. Jason Bernholtz, Director of Diagnostic Ultrasound Consultants in Oak Brook, Illinois. I'm speaking with Dr. Roshmarijn Vliekentart from the University Medical Center of Groningen in the Netherlands. Rosemary, thank you for joining us today. Uh, you're very welcome. The paper that you are presenting here at the RSNA, and my congratulations to you for being on the program with such an innovative paper, is entitled High Prevalence of Treatable Severe Coronary Artery Disease, Findings in a Randomized Controlled Trial in Cardiac Asymptomatic Peripheral Arterial Disease Patients. So I take it that you are starting off with patients who are presenting with uh, signs or symptoms of peripheral artery disease. That's correct. The patients were recruited from four vascular surgery departments. Patients were aged 50 years and older and all were diagnosed with peripheral arterial disease. So they had symptoms of peripheral arterial disease. Now, were many of these diabetic? 20% were diabetic. Okay. And you decided that you would study vessels in other parts of the body? Well, it's already known that patients with peripheral arterial disease have a high risk to uh, suffer from heart attacks and to die from heart disease. New radiological techniques now enable us to evaluate the extent of coronary artery disease in a non-invasive manner, so at a stage that the disease is still asymptomatic, which will maybe give us the opportunity to treat the asymptomatic disease before people actually succumb to a heart attack. Now, what were you using to look at coronaries? We use two techniques. It's computed tomography, CT, with contrast, commonly used CT angiography. This is a technique that enables us to depict the plaques in the coronary arteries and to see if there are narrowings in the coronary arteries. And a second technique is magnetic resonance imaging, MRI, and magnetic resonance imaging we can use to look at the function of the heart, so to see how well the heart is pumping and to see if part of the heart muscle is maybe not working as much as the other parts. Now, was the MRI done at rest or were you exercising these people in some way first? We used medication, a certain drug, to make the heart work harder because this enables us to see more clearly the part of the heart muscle that is not working as much as the other part of the muscle. And what did you find? Well, we found that in the patients with peripheral arterial disease who do not have symptoms of heart disease, one out of five showed severe signs of coronary artery disease on the CT angiography. And the MRI? On the MRI, we found two patients of the 76 who underwent MRI that showed signs of coronary artery disease. So they had less contracting heart muscle. So for screening purposes, you would say the CT is more practical? I think at this moment we cannot give definite advice on this yet. In our study we started with CT angiography and if the patients showed severe coronary artery disease in the sense that they had a left main stenosis or its equivalent, they were referred to a cardiologist. And if they did not show these signs, they underwent MRI imaging. But for now we don't know which technique should be used first. That's a topic for further research. 
Of course, a CT angiography shows anatomy and MRI shows function of the heart. So they're actually two different tests. Now, you said one in five, but you also said 20% of your patients were diabetic. Were these the same group, or did you find that it's the peripheral artery disease that is the important risk factor, not the diabetes, or do they add? Well, our group did not allow to look at all the specific risk factors in the PAD patients to say, okay, these are the patients that have the narrowings. There was, of course, overlap with diabetic patients, but they were not exclusively the diabetic patients that turned out to have severe coronary artery disease on the CT andrography. So patients without diabetes also are at risk of having the silent coronary artery disease. So you would think, uh, just based on your studies so far, that when somebody presents with clear-cut and definite peripheral artery disease, that if they have not already had it, further attention to the heart is very desirable in this group. That is still a question that we want to answer in the future. First of all, in our study, in 115 patients, we found that the presence of silent coronary artery disease was higher than we expected beforehand. But at this moment, it's still a rather small group that we want to expand to get more definite results on the prevalence of significant coronary artery disease. On the other hand, we know that these patients do not have symptoms of heart disease. So another topic of a a new study that we're going to be performing is when we treat those narrowings in the coronary arteries in patients who do not have symptoms, will they in the end have a better survival than the patients who do not get treatment? The very important message is that there is a lot of clinically silent coronary artery disease and that we now have uh, imaging techniques that let us get at this we never had before. And by whatever route that you decide that patients should require further attention, the more you look, the more you will find of a clinically silent, very important thing to find when you possibly can treat it. And I think what is very important, what our study results also emphasize, is the importance of treating risk factors, cardiovascular risk factors, in PAD patients. Because, of course, we know patients who have a history of heart disease are treated very strictly for high cholesterol level, for high blood pressure, etc. And usually this is not so strict in PAD patients. And based on our results, we would strongly recommend that the presence of cardiovascular risk factors in PAD patients is something that will lead to risk factor reduction in the sense of lifestyle changes and medication. That's the foremost, the first and foremost finding and implication because when we can prevent the disease, we're better off than treating it afterwards. Well, thank you very much. We've been speaking with Dr. Rosmarijn Vliekentart from the University Medical Center of Groningen in the Netherlands. Thank you very much. You're welcome. We're speaking with Dr. Asim Chowdhury from the Division of Neuroradiology at Johns Hopkins Medical School and Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Chowdhury is presenting actually a few papers and has a number of poster presentations. The two papers that we're focusing on today, first is entitled Diagnosis and Treatment Planning of Acute Aortic Emergencies Using a Handheld DICOM Viewer, and the other one is Handheld Device Review of Abdominal CT for the Evaluation of Acute Appendicitis. Asim, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. How are you today? 
Good. I'm wondering if you can tell our viewers a little bit about, first, teleradiology in general, and then uh, second, about the being able to use handheld devices like an iPhone. Okay. So teleradiology is a broad term that it, since the advent of digital imaging, digital x-rays, CAT scans, and MRIs, the concept of the reading room of the past can be decentralized. Wherever there is an internet connection, there can be interpretation of images, either for the diagnosis or for review by consultants. And modern handheld devices allows you to carry a full computer in your pocket. And so we thought, well, if teleradiology allows decentralization of the reading room, why can't it be spread to where a device in your pocket? Okay. Well, in a sense, you can acquire your images, whether they're CT, MRI, digital radiography, even ultrasound, sort of anywhere in the world, upload it into some server in the cloud somewhere, and then download it anywhere else. Exactly. And that can be done for the primary review, it can be done for a secondary consultation, or for a referring physician who is getting a call from the radiologist about a finding, and instead of just hearing from the radiologist, the images can be pushed directly to them, and they can go over the case together. Oh, that's right. You can go backwards once it's there in the yeah. server. Now, we're both used to the term DICOM. But can you tell the listeners what that enables you to do? Why is this different from just looking at a picture? Any picture that you get, take with a digital camera, for instance, is what you see is what you get. In a digital picture, if the sun is really bright, you can't see any detail in that, in that area. Medical imaging is no different. If you take a single snapshot, if something is too bright or too dark, no matter how you manipulate the image, you won't be able to see it. DICOM data is the raw medical imaging data, and sometimes there is a vast range of information in the CAT scan image or in the MRI image, and those are sometimes needed for diagnosis of different things. So you can manipulate the data to just look at the very, very low-density things on a CAT scan, like in the lungs, or very, very high-density, like in in the bones, and be able to do that all from the raw data, whereas a JPEG would not allow that. It's as if you're there doing the study yourself. Exactly. Absolutely. Uh, and I guess you can also zoom pictures, so you can use a small handheld display in a way that you might otherwise need a very giant monitor. Exactly. You can zoom, you can rotate, you can put little arrows onto the image, you can make measurements, and you can take snapshots and then email those to someone else if, if they need to. Well, what did you find with appendicitis? We found that there was a very good accuracy in being able to find the appendix and identify whether it's normal or abnormal. Not just saying yes or no acute appendicitis, but also other relevant information, such as whether there's evidence of a perforation or an abscess, all things that a consultant surgeon would very much like to know. And if the surgeon had a device like this and the images could be sent to them, they could also evaluate these findings and maybe determine whether a patient needs a laparoscopic appendectomy, an open appendectomy, or abscess drainage prior to appendectomy. Well, I guess the one point is that you're happy with the quality of the images on a handheld device as opposed to sitting in a dark room with a very classy monitor. Right. Absolutely. We think for CAT scan in the things that we've tested so far, it's performed very well, surprisingly well, and allowed the appropriate diagnostic information to be obtained. 
it still, I think, requires that at some point a formal interpretation is made using traditional established techniques, but for rapid consultation and for immediate dissemination of information, I think there's a strong role for this. I don't think people will be staging cancer based on this because that's not something that needs to be expedited so much. But for acute emergencies, in this case, appendicitis or traumatic aortic injury, aortic dissection, are all things that could benefit in the future, possibly things like strokes, intracranial hemorrhage, and traumatic injury to the abdomen. All these are things that I think are logical next steps. It's like carrying a beeper, except the beeper now is on steroids and you have lots of capabilities that you wouldn't have otherwise. And it can be somewhere in the hospital, maybe library, maybe having lunch, when something instant is needed and you're just not right in front of your monitor. Exactly. And that's especially beneficial, we think, in a training setting where residents or fellows may want more immediate feedback from a faculty member on a very difficult case. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that as, a, as an educational tool. And I think as more people start using this technology, I think we'll find a lot more uses for it and a lot more ways that it can hopefully benefit education and patient care. Do you have a feeling that this is a way we can communicate our findings visually to referring physicians? Definitely. The initial thing we were thinking for appendicitis is communication with the surgeon, giving them information about whether there's an abnormal position of the appendix, like a malrotation or abscess, all things that would change the surgical planning and surgical technique. I think every other thing that we can imagine would have similar roles, whether an orthopedic surgeon wanted to view the fracture to see if it's something they felt was unstable or needed immediate management or conservative management. There's a lot, of, a lot more things, I think, that as more people gain experience with the technology, I think more things will be, will be found out about it. Oh, you know, and you're right, there are many other areas like stress testing with the referral information directly back to the internist. Yeah, I think that the possibilities are limited only by the imagination and creativity of the people who have the technology and I think will only continue to expand as both the handheld technology expands as well as diagnostic medical information becomes more important. We've been speaking with Dr. Asim Chowdhury from the Division of Neuroradiology at the Johns Hopkins Medical School and Hospital. Asim, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to conference coverage highlights from the Radiological Society of North America's 95th Scientific Assembly and Annual Meeting. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Visit us at ReachMD.com, and thank you for listening.